you'll remain standing and open your Bible to John chapter 1. Continuing a series here through the Gospel of John. We just began last week. If, you're, if you missed last week, we're, uh, we're just started into that. And um, we expect to see Jesus in the Gospel of John. We need to see Jesus, and he's there. He's hard to miss in the Gospel of John. Title of this message, Religious Conservatives Need Jesus. Reading out of the English Standard Version, hear the word of the Lord. And this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I'm not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I'm not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I'm not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit from heaven, a descent from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, he is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. And this is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Well, Father, we thank you as always for your word that we open with the expectation that you have something to say to us in it. By your spirit, the word comes to life. By your spirit, that word is applied in dozens of different ways to individuals with different perspectives, needs, backgrounds, situations that they bring to the text. And we find you amazingly able and willing to do that for us. And so we come today with that very same desire, Lord, that you'd open our ears to hear our hearts, to understand and receive what you have for us. And so would you speak O Lord, your word, by your spirit, through your servant, to your people, for your glory. And God, I pray today, as always, that you'd move me out of the way, as I am quite capable of making unclear something that you've made very clear. Just use my voice as your instrument, in Christ's name and for his sake, that he might be magnified. Amen. And you may be seated. 
Well, I'm glad to have a choir behind me uh, today, and y'all are, y'all are with me, right? Uh, because, you know, I'm one of those, I, I go into a restaurant, and Monica knows my just instinct is, to, uh, is to, to sit facing the room. I don't know if any of you other, particularly men, do that. I want to see, it's a, there's just some protective instinct, and uh, so I usually don't sit with a whole bunch of people behind me, but I know this crowd is with me. And uh, if you see little signals, you know, that, that maybe they're not, you, you just give me a wink or a nod or something and let me know. Well, last week we saw that John opens his gospel with an introduction uh, to Jesus. As I said, that really, he really is the focus of the gospel as he ought to be. But we saw that he told us that Jesus is co-eternal with the Father, co-equal with the Father. He is the agent of creation, uh, life and light, the revelation of God's glory, and that he was a real flesh and blood human being. That was his introduction to who Jesus is. And then in this passage, he moves to John the Baptist testimony of Jesus. And this can be confusing for folks who are new to the Bible. Uh, There's John the Apostle writing the gospel, and he's writing about John the Baptist. And so there are two different Johns that are relevant here. But in essence, the narrative of this passage revolves around three characters, if you will. John, the Jews, and Jesus. Now that's three J's, but I did not do that. It was just right here. This time, that's not my fault. John, the Jews, and Jesus. And you could say the summary of this passage is that John tells the Jews they need Jesus. That's essentially uh, why this is here in the text. It's about John's testimony about Jesus. In fact, uh, what's a a little bit distinctive about John's uh, inclusion of John the Baptist, John the Apostle's inclusion of John the Baptist, all four Gospels say something about John the Baptist's ministry and his relevance to Jesus' ministry, how the two of those intersect. But he doesn't really say a whole lot about John's ministry itself or his message and so forth other than He's the one giving testimony about Jesus. And that really is the relevance of John the Baptist um, overall in the Gospels, is that he was a forerunner pointing to Jesus, giving testimony that he is who he says he is. But John tells the Jews they need Jesus, and that's really why I titled the message, Religious Conservatives need Jesus to sort of bring it home to us. That's really the the singular point I want to attempt to make. And as I said, even in my prayer, I'm capable uh, of making unclear something that's perfectly clear by itself. And so what I want to actually do this morning is to to go maybe a little bit in reverse of what I uh, might otherwise do and just spend a little little time up front saying, this is the point I want to make. And, um, And so that if I don't make any other you'll know what you're supposed to walk away with, that, uh, that religious conservatives need Jesus too. Hey, here's the thing. Everybody needs Jesus. But part of the message of this passage and John's message to the Jews is people who think they don't need him are the ones who need him the most. And the ones who think they don't need him are the ones most at risk of not finding him because they think they already have what they need. And so I want to I want to actually begin with this diagram and Jim if you'll put this slide up. It's not a particularly good diagram. And you can't even see it, can you? You'll have to you have to look later. But what I've attempted to illustrate here is that living by grace as a as a Christian the, the Christian life 
our walk with Christ, being crucified with Christ. It's not I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. And living that way is, is essentially a life perched up upon a hill, and on either side there is a slippery slope. And on one side it leads to legalism, and on another side it leads to what I've just called lawlessness. Okay? You could, you could term it other ways. You could put fundamentalism on one side and liberalism on the other side. There are different, different categories that play out here. But what is, what is true, and it's been true for as long as there have been human beings, it's been true ever since Christ was revealed to mankind too, and ever since there's been a church of Jesus Christ, that there remains this tendency to drift in one direction or the other, and then to slip into either legalism or lawlessness. And what tends to happen, of course, is that you people on either side of that think they're the ones who got it right. People on either side of that think they're perched atop the hill. And it's the other guy that's got his problems they're trying to call out. What happens there is you've got Uh, People on each side of that shouting at each other, pointing out the the faults or the hypocrisy or so forth, uh, all of that. And both of them are apart from Christ. Not necessarily as a permanent state, but that that is not a life in Christ. And the other truth of this is we are kept in that life by grace or life in grace by grace. We are kept by grace atop that hill. And you know, probably as well as I do in your own uh, experience, that all I need to do, all I need to do is get careless, indifferent, uh, failing to attend to my spiritual health and I will slip one direction or the other. It's like there's a certain gravity that pulls us away from that place of grace. You understand what I mean by that? Like I don't, I don't, need, I don't need to try hard to go either place. I just I, I will naturally drift one direction or the other and end up in a place of essentially legalism, fundamentalism, um, whatever else you want to call it, ultra-conservatism versus the other side, a lawlessness and, uh, and so on. Both are almost always present in the life of the professing Christian community. Almost always present. Uh, sometimes it's, uh, this lawlessness is referred to as antinomianism or antinomianism. It's sort of against law. There's, there's no law that binds me, essentially. And that's really, that's really uh, the, the common reaction to legalism. As people will see, there's something wrong with this. There's something oppressive by this. I'm going the other direction and whoa, and they're all slip, slide all the way down to lawlessness again. And it's sort of the back and forth. That is, that is the, the natural tendency of sinful man to slip one, one way or the other. And we are kept in grace by grace. Now, I start there uh, 
Because again, when the, the, the emphasis here in this passage is for those on the right side of this diagram. That those who are the religious conservatives of their day, those who tend to be um, legalistic and are really separated from Christ. The message John has to them, hey, he's among you, he's coming, you need him, and you aren't even close. <laughs> you are not ready for what it is that he's bringing. That's the message John has to the, the Jews. The Messiah is among you already. And what it is that he's bringing, you are not prepared for. And that's always, that's always a relevant message to the church because as I've said from time to time, there are always people who are professing Christians who are not really Christians. They, they don't, and, and in some cases, don't even know they're really not. They think they are and aren't. They really haven't been born again. They've maybe, uh, even the, 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 to me, the most sinister part of that is when there have been these, uh, I don't know, sort of methods that say, you know, there's a, at the end of the service here, there will be this hymn of invitation. We're going to sing the first, second, and fourth stances of just as I am. You come down front and say this prayer. At the end of the amen, you'll be, uh, you'll be saved. And that prayer or that walk down the aisle does not save you. That might be that might be that prayer, certainly that prayer of confession and repentance and surrender to the Lord is absolutely essential to being saved. But that exercise itself doesn't save you. And there are some people who have, who have done that. Uh, and it's, it is just as ritualistic as many other kind of religious exercises. And they think they're Christians, but actually haven't been born again. So there are always always within this within the sort of domain of Christendom there are those religious conservatives who have a lot of the talk of people who are authentically born again and belong to Jesus a lot of the belief even a lot of the external exercise of the of the life of a Christian and yet uh, their, their life is not really held by him. And so I want to I I survey this passage with that having been said. In other words, that, that's what I want us to hear is how religious conservatives need Jesus. Even those, by the way, even those of us who really are born again, really do belong to Jesus, we never, never outgrow our need for the gospel do you understand that? That we really need to be preaching the gospel to ourselves every day. And this is why I said when I read Psalm 51 at the outset, create in me a clean heart, renew a right spirit in me, then I will tell transgressors their ways. If I, if I as a pattern of my life, am, am regularly enough aware of my own sin and my own sinful tendencies, my own tendency to drift, my own knowledge of where that leads me repeatedly to these low places of either legalism or lawlessness, etc. If I'm aware of that, 
the good news is that Jesus always has an answer for that. See, the, 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 the revelation that everybody needs Jesus, the revelation that religious conservatives need Jesus, by itself, that's not good news. The good news is that there is Jesus. <laughs> I mean, the revelation that we need a Savior would be bad news if there weren't a Savior. But there is. And we always need him. We always need him. And so, again, I'm, I'm saying up front what I may fail to say uh, at any other point in the, in, the, in the message, but that is the, the warning to us, the warning lights on our dashboard, one of them ought to be if we as professing believers ever get to the point where we don't, we're not aware of our need for grace, our need to be kept by the grace of God, our need to to have forgiveness applied to us once again. If we, don't, if we don't live with an awareness of his need, but we live in a, with an awareness of everybody else's need, that ought to be screaming at us as a warning signal. Because we need Jesus. And so I want to survey the passage here. As I said, it really uh, sort of revolves around John, the Jews, and Jesus. And so I want to I want to sort of survey the passage to, to help you see how I think uh, this passage leads us to that message that John tells the Jews they need Jesus. And first, what it tells us about John here, and I'd say if it weren't for Jesus, we probably wouldn't know anything about John the Baptist today. Not because there would be nothing to be known about him in history or that uh, that. He wouldn't be recorded anywhere else. It's just that as 21st century uh, Americans, there would be nothing relevant about John the Baptist to us. It's this guy who lived once upon a time in Judea. We wouldn't, we wouldn't know of him if it weren't for Jesus. And he would be glad to tell us that. He would be glad that that is true because he said, this is the reason that I came forth to testify to him, to prepare the way for him. But in his day, he was very well known. He was, he was sort of the talk of the town in every town. The Old Testament, as you may know, ends with the book of Malachi, the last of the prophets, the last of the minor prophets, written somewhere around probably the mid-400s BC. And so for a, a little over 400 years, there had not been any prophetic voice in Israel. No prophetic voice until the arrival of John the Baptist. And those are sometimes called the silent years. Those years in between the Old Testament and the New Testament are sometimes referred to that way as the silent years because there was no prophetic voice. So when John enters the scene, he stands out. You know, it, people take notice of him. Matthew chapter 3, in, uh, in describing John a little bit more, you know, says he... He wore um, a garment of camel hair with a leather belt. He ate locusts and wild honey and uh, lives out in the wilderness. So he's not a mainstream kind of guy. <laughs> he stood out just in that way, um, obviously, but, but his, his message stood out and it was, it was having an impact and drawing people's attention. And part of what is helpful to understand about his ministry and even some of what is kind of in the background in this passage that, that sort of weighs on this passage here is that during this 
intertestamental period, this period in between the Old and New Testaments, there had been two other developments within Judaism that factor into what John is writing about. And that is, number one, proselyte baptisms, and number two, just the emergence of the Pharisees. And I'm just going to touch these pretty quickly. But uh, when people, the proselyte baptisms, when people from outside the Jewish community wanted to become Jews, wanted to embrace Judaism and become Jews, this practice had emerged that they had to be baptized. They were, Gentiles were considered unclean. And in order to be cleansed, to enter into the separated people of God, they had to be baptized. Sort of a, pure, a symbolic purification of their own uh, cleanness. But those non-Jewish converts baptized themselves. Okay, it was just a washing. I think about this a little bit like, you remember when you went to the swimming pool as a kid, and they said, uh, before you get in the pool, shower off. I remember thinking as a nine-year-old boy, that seems like a dumb idea. There's a whole swimming pool there. I'm going to wash all the dirt off right there. But, uh, but the point was, <laughs> cleanse yourself before you enter the community pool, you know? And so there, there's a, there, or, or, you know, you could think of uh, living here at the beach and coming, coming in so often with sand on your feet. You know, you got a hose by the back door if you live near the, uh, the coast or whatever, hose your feet off before you come in the house. It's that sort of, that sort of picture. Clean yourself. That's, that was what proselyte baptisms were. So John's baptism was different in at least two ways. First, that he was the one doing the baptizing. It says John was baptizing. Again, this is something that doesn't seem unusual to us at all. Because in the Christian community, baptism's always been a thing, and there's a minister doing the baptizing. But at John's time, he'd be speaking to people. Their notion of baptism would have been, it's Gentiles or non-Jews, and they, they baptize themselves. He was doing the baptizing. Secondly, he was calling Jews to be baptized, not just Gentiles. That's why then the Jews ask him, why are you baptizing uh, did you catch that? I mean, he's in, in uh, uh, I didn't write down the verse here. You know, are you, uh, verse 24, they've been sent from the Pharisees. And then 25, they asked him, why are you baptizing if you're neither Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? There, there was nobody in their midst to baptize this way. Why are you, who are you? This is where the question comes from. And probably what's, what's in the background is, who do you think you are? Who are you? Are you the Christ? Are you, are you the prophet? Are you Elijah? Come back. Are you, 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 surely you're somebody. You must think you're somebody to be baptizing and to be telling us we need to be baptized. But that's exactly what John is doing. Okay, and this is, again, this is important for us to appreciate the message that he's delivering. John tells the Jews they need Jesus. And the fact that he would say to them, you need to come too, and you need to be baptized, and I'm going to do the baptizing. That rubs a little bit, rubs the fur in the wrong direction in a couple of ways there. But that's, that's who John is here in this picture. And then uh, it tells us a little bit about the Jews to whom he's speaking. A delegation has gone to investigate 
John the Baptist. You know, they did something similar with Jesus at one point out in Galilee. And I can just picture, I mean, I just, I've got this manufactured picture in my head, but I, I can just picture the guys with their clipboards, you know, standing in the corner. Who does he think he is? But they've gone, they've, they've been sent to find out who is this guy? Because they can't ignore him. He's making such an impact. I mean, people are going out to the wilderness to be baptized by him. And, and one of the concerns among Jewish leaders, especially uh, at this period of time, was different sort of fringe movements that would create political unrest. The Romans would get concerned about uprisings and that sort of thing. That was one of their, their chief concerns was keeping this stuff tamped down, you know, so that uh, nothing got out of sorts with the Roman authorities because they wanted to be in good favor to a certain extent because the, the, the leadership there enjoyed the privileges that came with that. And so that's one of the concerns that they bring to that. But he's different for sure. His baptism different. He's attracting uh, people. His, his attraction of people is different. They, they can't ignore him. So they send this delegation and say, who are you? Hey, we, listen, are you, are you Elijah? No. Are you the prophet? No. Uh, are you the, uh, the uh, well, they don't ask him, I guess, the Christ. He says he's not the Christ. Who are you then? We, we got to put something in our report. <laughs> That's basically what he says, isn't it? Who are you? We, we need to tell those who sent us something. Give us something to put in our report. He says, well, I'm the voice of one crying in the wilderness. I'm the guy Isaiah prophesied of in chapter 40 that before the coming of the Messiah, there would be one, a forerunner who would say he's coming. Crying in the wilderness. Here he is out in the wilderness crying. He's coming. Oh, by the way, he's among you. We'll get to that in just a minute. But verse 24 says of these inquirers that they had been sent from the Pharisees. Um, as I mentioned, this is another sort of development in this period between the Old and New Testaments. So you don't hear about Pharisees in the Old Testament. But as soon as the New Testament opens up to us, opens up to us they're all over the place, right? And we know about them from that way. We, uh, we particularly read the Gospels and we see how Jesus is in opposition with them and in so many places. They sort of emerged as a community or as a movement of sorts um, in that period in between the Old and New Testaments and developed around synagogues. You know, the temple really was the center of worship for the Jewish people, but then there were synagogues scattered throughout the country that were um, sort of like outposts of the temple, if you were, little, little centers of worship for people who uh, at all other times couldn't just go and worship in Jerusalem. And the Pharisees kind of developed um, in that context. They're, they're not, in other words, they're not big city, uh, power-centered elitists. They're more populist kind of religious movement, grassroots of sort, a little bit more common folks. They know the Bible, they love the Bible, and they love their country. They know the Bible, they love the Bible, they love their country. And that's really part of their concern was 
uh, because of their love for their country and because their country's waywardness in, in times past for disobeying God's laws and seeing the, the curses that had been promised would come upon them if they ever left uh, the Lord and, and failed to live in his, uh, com- under his commandments and so forth. The, the calamity that would befall them had befallen them and the Pharisees were so uh, concerned with not letting that happen again that they developed a whole additional set of rules to go on top of the biblical law. And this is what, if you studied the Bible, you have a little bit of a sense of this. This is part of the problem. They've added other rules to be sure people don't get even close to violating. So here's where the line's drawn. We're going to back up 10 steps from the line to be sure you don't get too close to the line and cross over the line. So they had all kinds of other rules. For example, uh, where the, the Ten Commandments says, remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. Well, just so we be sure we don't violate the Sabbath, we're going to have all kinds of rules about how you keep the Sabbath, including how far can you walk on a Sabbath day. All the different things, particular things that would constitute work. They, that those were pharisaical laws that had been added or rules that had been added. And so in in many ways, they were good at following them too. And they were regarded by lots of people as being godly, holy people, examples uh, to be followed and so forth. And so those self-proclaimed holy men come to John saying, who do you think you are to tell us we need to be baptized? that we're unclean in some way. Show me your credentials, sir. Who accredited you to be calling for repentance of that sort? So they're the ones. They're the ones who thought they were in the position of telling other people how to clean up their act. Right? You think, can you think of places in the New Testament where Jesus uh, sort of not just bumped up against it, but just ran up against it, I guess. But that they, they were the ones telling people how to clean up their act and laying burdens upon them that nobody could carry. Standards set out that nobody could live up to. They're the ones know the Bible, love the Bible, love their country, and tell everybody else how to clean up their act. Now, there's something in there that strikes home uh, among conservative Christians lots of times and in lots of ways. People who love the Word of God, know the Word of God, but mostly know how it applies to other people and how they need to clean up their act to get in line. That's the Jews to whom John is, is speaking and say, you need Jesus pointing to him. And that's really the third, of course, figure here, a character here. And what does John tell us about Jesus? Well, it says in verse 26, he's among them. Also in verse 26, they don't know him. He's here. You just don't know him. They're asking, in other words, are you the Christ? No, I'm not, but he's around. 
You just don't know him. He tells us, uh, tells them and us, Jesus is far superior to anybody they've ever imagined, really, by implication. He says, really, he's far superior to John himself. But see, John is such an extraordinary character, uh, drawing such a crowd, so to speak. There are people responding to this message of, of uh, repentance. He's so extraordinary that they think he must be Elijah or the prophet. or so, They know he's somebody special, in other words. This is not an ordinary guy. John says, though, about Jesus, what, in verse 27? Even one who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. Uh, d- disciples of a rabbi in that period of time assisted him in a variety of ways. There were, there were lots of ways a disciple would, would assist a rabbi. You think about even uh, Jesus when he was preparing for the Passover, when he went into Jerusalem during the last week of his life, and he sends two of his disciples to, pre- to prepare the room. We ought to take that together. Disciples would serve a rabbi in, in all kinds of ways, but not loosing the sandals of their feet and taking those off. That was a task uh, reserved for slaves in that era, a, f- a filthy task. And, and, and most people couldn't be lowered to that level of taking off somebody's sandals. What John says of Jesus is, I'm not even worthy of taking off his sandals. Not only is that task not too low for me, I'm too low even for that task. That's what he says about Jesus. He's telling to them, that he's, he's among you and he is far superior. He is far superior to anything you've ever conceived of in the Messiah. I'm not even worthy to untie the sandals of his feet. It says also in verse 29, he's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Lamb of God who himself takes away the sin of the world. He has the Holy Spirit and baptizes with the Holy Spirit in verse 33 and he is the Son of God, verse 34. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the one upon whom the Spirit descends and who baptizes in the Holy Spirit, and he's the Son of God. Those are extraordinary claims and unimaginably offensive to his hearers at that time. We thought you were bad, telling us we need to be baptized and presuming you're the one to baptize. But to say that about anybody that he's a lamb of God who himself takes away the sin of the world. Now, let's try to appreciate how extraordinary that, that claim would be in light of the fact that they think, number one, that it's only Gentiles who need to be cleansed, that they need to cleanse themselves through this ritual uh, purification of a water baptism. And John's saying, there is one among you who's far superior to that, that he himself in himself has the authority and the ability to cleanse the sins of not only Gentiles, but also Jews. The whole world, 
without any distinction, whether Jew or Greek. And he's telling them, I know you think you're holy. I know you're respected as being holy men. I know your leaders in the community. I know you know the word of God. But you need Jesus as much as anybody else does. Far superior to anything you ever imagined. And his forgiveness, his cleansing is far superior to any that's ever been uh, construed by man. Well, we, we might sort of try to tie that together by uh, kind of bringing our thoughts around to where I started. And that is that religious conservatives need Jesus, that there are, there are people all throughout the history of the church, including in our day, perhaps, and even in this room, who, uh, who think of themselves as being real authorities on the scriptures, love the Bible, love their country, but they have a real good sense of what other people need to do, how other people are the problem, and if they'd get their act together, everything would be better. And so, we, we, we might, uh, again, take a little assessment of ourselves in that regard. Uh, a, few, a few of the sort of warning lights that come up on the instrument panel. Uh, that religious conservatives tend to think they're already godly. Religious conservatives uh, don't think the message of repentance is for them. By the way, all these things were said of the Pharisees at one time or another. They see the fault in other people, but not in themselves. They think that doing good deeds or performing religious ceremonies will earn you favor for, for, from God. That's sometimes the substitute, right, to real repentance it's just things that I can control and I can do that'll keep me right with God. They substitute religious exercises for real relationship with God. And they are often angered by the sin of other people and almost never grieved by their own sin. Often angered by the sin of other people, almost never grieved by their own sin. And I would say, you know, it's, it's not a good thing to be um, overly preoccupied by a sense of our own sin and always living with a sense of condemnation for our own sin. That is, again, you want to talk about a, a slippery slopes on either side. Uh, that, that is just as much a burden as a legalistic one is. To never understand the sufficiency of the grace of God in Christ for my sin. And to live with a sense of guilt and condemnation. That is, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And that's part of the message we're supposed to get. But given a choice between the two, I think I would rather have somebody who is overly aware of their sin than I would somebody who's not aware of it at all. Because the person who thinks they've already arrived in the right place and it's just everybody else needs to join them there is perhaps the one who's in the most need of Jesus. Everybody needs Jesus. 
but religious conservatives need him too. Christian conservatives who have him go right on day by day needing him. Stumbling and, 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 and arriving at that place again. Lord, here I am again in this same pit that I've made for myself. I feel like I ought to just put a plant in the corner and hang wall hangings here just to make myself feel more at home. I end up right back in this same place far too often for my own liking. People for whom that is our story need Jesus and need to understand the grace of Jesus because we're kept by the grace of Jesus. And so the invitation, uh, the invitation whether we have slid down the slippery slope to the legalistic side, whether we've slid down the slope to the lawless side, or whether we're sliding one way or the other perched upon, upon that hill, the invitation is follow Jesus. Come to him. Cast your cares upon him. Confess your sins to him. Repent and believe in him. Trust him. He's done the rest. But I can, I can say, uh, there are lots of things I can't say with, with 100% confidence. I can say with 100% confidence to everybody here today, you need Jesus. You need Jesus. And so wherever you are, and however that translates, whatever that means to you today to respond, that's the call. Uh, that's the... Uh, in some cases, the alarm or the warning light. That's the invitation. We need him. And he has made provision for all of our needs. All of the, uh, every bit of forgiveness we need, every uh, bit of provision we need, everything is there available in him. And so let's respond to him now. Let's pray. Well, God, as I prayed at the beginning, I'm uh, plenty capable of making unclear what's abundantly clear. Lord, I pray by your spirit that you would just apply this word, that you would quicken our hearts and show us where we are in relation to um, this message and this passage. Lord, that if we are people who think we have arrived and that other people need to join us here. Lord, would you convict us of that? That the sacrifices of God, of God are a, a broken heart and a contrite spirit. Lord, would you, would you make us people who understand enough of our own weakness that we constantly look to you, turn to you, flee to you, for you to be our strength. And lead us to that place as we respond now. In Jesus' name, amen.